Hey everyone, it's Dave again. I'm back to do another Disney podcast from my perspective. Now, it may not be a completely unique perspective, but it provides a different view from other podcasts that are out there on the internet. Now, I'd like to put that in a frame of reference for you. There are a number of really good podcasts out there, and I'll admit I listen to uh, several of them regularly. Uh, many of them you can find on my iPod at any time. They each have something they do very well, whether it's news, segments, or travel planning, or a tour through the park with their MP3 recorder. Whatever it is, they're, they're all pretty good in their own way. They're enjoyable, and, and I do listen to them. I, I like listening to them. It's, it's fun to listen to information about Disney and different people's viewpoints about Disney. And that's where this, this podcast fits in. I like to think that I provide another viewpoint of Disney and would hope to put more out there to just make it enjoyable and let you have another, another option to listen to. So I want to take a different viewpoint and give you some insights that are maybe a little more personal to me that maybe will capture you in the same way. Let me tell you a little bit more about me. On my previous podcast, I gave you some information about who I am and what I do and how I bring things to the table. I said before that I'm a huge fan of Disney, and that is absolutely true. When I lived in Orlando for five years, I visited the parks as often as I possibly could. And now that I live back in South Florida, I visit as often as I can, but it's a heck of a lot less often than it was. I get there maybe once a year, twice a year, something on that order, where I used to be there you know, more like once a week. I was a cast member for a while and got the backstage view of a lot of things. And I have formed a lot of opinions about things as a cast member and even as a guest before I became a cast member. I'm an industrial engineer by trade. So when I look at Disney World, I always apply that engineering perspective. What is it that makes it different from any other park? What is it that makes it interesting? What captures my imagination? I don't think there are any other podcasts out there that do the same thing. So I would like to think that mine's going to fill a unique niche to help people to understand what it is that makes it interesting from an engineering perspective. Also, one other rationale for doing a podcast is to try and capture that short attention span market. As I said, I enjoy a number of podcasts, but some of them can be a little long. My goal is to keep my shows between 15 and 30 minutes, and if that means I have to spread my thoughts and discussions across multiple podcasts, I'll do that because I think it's important to kind of keep to the frame of making it 15 to 30 minutes long and making it relevant. And with that housekeeping in order, I wanted to move on to this week's podcast. I want to make this part one of a three-part series about an extinct attraction that you may remember, the Horizons Pavilion in Epcot. This is one of my favorite attractions in all of Disney World, and of course in Epcot. It was an amazing attraction that combined a true sense of purpose a storyline, a musical score, and some really clever engineering. And I admit, I was sad when it went. I, I was really sad to see it go. I want to take you through it from conception all the way to what became of the attraction. I want to share with you what it was all about, and what made it interesting to me, and to the community of fans that has grown over the years. If you look on the internet, if you Google uh, Horizons, you'll find a lot of information about Horizons and what it was and people talking about it. It's amazing how many people have become interested in it since it went out. Originally, it was called Century 3. Horizons was on the drawing board when Epcot was originally conceived, but it was not built in time for the park opening. But it was the first new attraction added to Epcot, and it did open on the park's first anniversary. The idea was to build up tomorrow, the future, and what the future might look like for us. It was about 1979 when this uh, appeared on the drawing board, 
and the concept was to look ahead about 25 years into the 21st century. They had some very interesting ideas on how to create this vision of the future, but remember that Epcot itself was intended to be a model for the future. You had a community of people living and working together, and the newest technology was going to be showcased throughout. It was kind of like Tomorrowland on steroids, or at least that's the way I like to think of it. I'll do another show later about Epcot itself, but relating it back to Horizon, the Imagineers wanted to develop something that showcased what might happen in the 21st century and what lay just on the horizon. George McGinnis, one of the Imagineers who worked on the attraction, had the following to say to, about Horizons to Mouse Planet, another really good site on the internet, back in 2004. Basic premise was that the Horizons show would pick up from the story in the Carousel of Progress by presenting that show's memorable family one generation older. The parents are now grandparents communicating with their kids spread out all over the world and into space. The story sequenced uh, through the past, present, and future. The past was presented as looking back at the future, as science fiction writers have portrayed it. The, pre the present, viewed on the giant Omnimax screens, used the current science images from the space shuttle lifting off to views of molecular structures and DNA by filmmaker, filmmaker Eddie Garrick. The future would let us visit the family members and habitats and environments that are still a dream in scientists' minds. The father and mother kept, keep in touch with their children in these distant places via holographic devices. And I think that's a good synopsis of what the ride was all about. What I find really intriguing is that this was an extension of the Carousel of Progress and that family. It really did take one of Walt's visions and expand on it. Remember that in the Carousel of Progress, you looked at the family at the turn of the 20th century, then the 1920s, the 1940s, and in its original incarnation, the 1960s. Horizons is going to take that further. We leave today, look back to the 1800s, then ahead to the 21st century. And since we started in the 1800s, that would be the first century, what was today at the time, at its inception, the 20th century, would be called the second century, and the 21st century would be the third century. And as far as I can tell, that's how it's got its, its working title of Century 3. This is why I also think of it as Tomorrowland on steroids. It's a continuation of the theme, but with room for growth rather than focusing in on today, as the carousel did. Remember, the carousel always suffered from an identity crisis because after the 1960s, they decided to update that fourth scene and make it to the 1970s, then the 1980s, then the 1990s. So you kind of expanded out the length between the 40s and, and today. They brought it back to the 1960s-ish because they wanted to make it more like Walt's view of the future from, as seen from the 1950s. As for Horizons, this attraction was meticulous in its detail, and it was probably one of the most detailed attractions in the entire resort. From the costumes, to the paintings, to the musical score, and even the orange smell, the Imagineers really set a standard of excellence. Every bit and piece had a purpose and appears to have been deliberately put in its place. They took the time to consider, how do we make everything real, or at least realistic, and how do we get people to think about things and wonder? As an aside, that's one thing I love about Disney. They take the time to teach you things by making things fun and interactive. Oftentimes, you don't even realize you're learning something. They're teaching you something new, and you've learned it, and you think back in your mind and you say, wow, I learned that at Disney, and such and such ride. The ride system they chose for this was the Omnimover system. This is a technology that Disney developed to take guests through a series of scenes at a specific interval. It really amounts to a bunch of cars or ride vehicles that are attached together and pulled along a track. It's incredibly simple and deceptively complex. Another example of an attraction that uses the Omnimover system is the Haunted Mansion. You step onto a moving platform and then into a car that takes you into the story. That way the Imagineers can control the story, 
They decide the angles you will see, and for how long, and what direction you're going to exit from. And possibly more importantly, the system's constant motion has the effect of reducing queue time, unlike an attraction that has to stop to load and unload regularly. From an engineering standpoint, it's fascinating. At some point in the future, I'll tell you more about some of the patents Disney holds, but this is certainly one of them. I mentioned that the music is an important facet of this attraction. Disney decided to create some entirely new compositions specifically for this attraction. George Wilkins, Disney's resident composer, was tabbed to write the music. He is responsible for writing, arranging, and producing over 36 hours of music for film, theater, and pavilion attractions at Epcot, Disney World, uh, Disneyland California, France, Tokyo, and China. Uh, in over 22 years, he'd written shows for Universal Studios, uh, tour ride called The Art of Making Movies, the MGM Studio, uh, Great Movie Ride, General Electric's new Carousel of Progress, Epcot's Land Pavilion Re Rehab, and the new Imagination Pavilion, One Little Spark. And then they pulled together a full orchestra to perform music to be played during the ride. One of the things I always think about on this ride is the music. Beyond the orange smell and a few memorable lines, the music really made the attraction. I can hear it now and think of the scene that it appeared in. The Omnimax film is another important piece to the attraction, and really was the centerpiece of the show. A little history about Omnimax for you. A few Canadian entrepreneurs came up with this large film format, a 70mm film, where the standard film technology was 35mm, that used a single projector that was revolutionary in the 1970s. The larger format film allowed for the projected image to be larger on a screen with no graininess. So if you took a 35mm film and you showed it on a 90-foot screen, you'd probably have some amount of graininess or some distortion in the picture. They called their company IMAX and sold the equipment to various locations to display these films. Later, they enhanced the technology to allow for the film to be projected onto a dome. And then they improved on that by filming through a special fisheye lens, and then projecting back through a similar fisheye lens to allow for a panorama to be displayed on a uh, dome surface, on a curved surface. This technology they dubbed Omnimax. Disney worked with the company to take this even further, adding the element of a moving ride as you're looking at the show, while keeping the image relatively static. They accomplished this by having multiple screens that the ride vehicles turned around and using some special optical tricks to make it appear as though it was static to you. And this is another place where Disney really thought through how to make the ride special. Sure, they, they put the Omnimax film in there, but they took it to a new level because they had the moving ride vehicles going around three screens so that you were seeing everything kind of happening as you turned, but it appeared to be in the same place for you. It almost was like you were standing still for some period of time. And that was truly remarkable. In the end, all of the individual elements made the ride spectacular. You had the music, the Omnimax, the attention to detail, and the storyline that kept it moving along. Horizons opened on October 1st, 1983, so it was a full year after, after Epcot opened. It was specifically about the future. It was, quote, dedicated to humanity's future. It's a careful synthesis of all the wonders within Epcot and applies the elements of communication, energy, transportation, creativity, and technology to a better lifestyle for the family of the future. And this was from a pictorial souvenir of the Walt Disney World Resort in 1990. Horizons takes guests on a fascinating journey through the world of the 21st century. First, they look back at what past visionaries dreamed the future would be, like Jules Verne, to sci-fi's 1920s and 30s comic books, to a futuristic 1950s. Then, two giant atmosphere screens show what scientists and explorers are discovering now, which will be the basis for the future. Next, guests enter the 21st century and view a typical city apartment, a desert farm, complete with the scent of fresh oranges, an underwater city, and a space colony. 
In order to return home to the 20th century, guests chose the method of travel, on land, under sea, or through space. Upon arriving, guests are left with the final thought, if we can dream it, we we really can do it. And that's the most exciting part. One of the reasons that it was delayed by a year after Upcom opened was that um, General Electric was sponsoring it. They were trying to get the sponsorship all nailed down. They signed a 10-year sponsorship agreement, and that's when uh, construction actually started. And they used a lot of General Electric things to put into the pavilion. When General Electric's contract was up on September 30, 1993, they closed Horizons temporarily, and they weren't sure what they were going to do with it. Without the sponsorship there, it's an expensive proposition to maintain the ride, to keep it up to date, to make it really meaningful. So Disney closed it for some period of time, but then they had other problems with the uh, with the other two pavilions next to it, or the other three pavilions in the area. World of Motion was going to undergo a rehab uh, to become uh, what it is today, and then uh, the Universe of, e- Universe of Energy was going to undergo some renovations, and the Wonders of Life pavilion never really took off the way they wanted it to, so they had some issues with that as well, and that was open kind of seasonally for a while. So they had to reopen Horizons for some period of time to keep people uh, interested and get something on that side of the park, otherwise you had nothing over there. That was that was the way it worked for several years as they were getting everything ready, but then finally on January 9th, 1999, so 1999, 1999, they, uh, they closed it for good, and they tore it out and they put in a Mission Space. I haven't ridden Mission Space myself. I'm not a huge fan of like you know, simulated uh, simulated productions. I have a little problem sometimes with some of these simulations, so I, I haven't ridden it. And you know, I have trouble believing that it'd be any better than Horizons. I mean, maybe technically it's better. I, I'm not saying that it's not. I think Horizons just was so imaginative. I find it hard to believe that something that's a thrill ride would be better in my in my experience. When they closed it, they gave a lot of reasons for closing. We're saying, oh, there was a, you know, there was a sinkhole behind it. There was a number of issues with the ride uh, maintenance that they had. They didn't have a sponsor for it. Uh, they needed a bigger space for the new pavilions. They tore it down. They had a lot of different stories and things that they told. You know, the reality is, you get to the heart of the matter. It's about merchandising. It's about, about uh, having sponsorship. It's about having money. And so uh, you really couldn't merchandise anything off of Horizons. You couldn't do anything with, with the sponsorships because they didn't have any sponsors at that point. Uh, GE was, you know, was certainly not on board anymore, and they couldn't find anyone else to sponsor it. Yeah, the sinkhole may have been a problem, but it could have probably been overcome. But I think the reality was once they got this, uh, this new deal with Compaq that was sponsoring Mission Space, they had a lot of money. Uh, so now they were going to actually do something. The other problem they were faced with is a problem that Tomorrowland and, and, uh, and Magic Kingdom always has. It's not up to date. It's how do you have the vision of the future when the future is already upon you. So when they built Horizons, here it was, it was 19, uh, 1981 when they were working on it, and here it was, it was 18 years later, and you hadn't updated the attraction at all. How do you update it to make things better, to make them seem more futuristic, if in fact you can't do anything with it? So that was one of the big questions that they were faced with along the way, and I think that was one of the challenges. And the same challenge that they have about Tomorrowland today, and now if you look at Tomorrowland, they're kind of viewing it as a 1950s view of the future, right? So they've kind of backed it all off and given you that instead of just telling you that it's a view of the future, which I find kind of funny. So they demolished the building and off it went. Back in the early days of Epcot, when it was still all capital letters and had sort of an acronym to it, they had an icon uh, that represented future world pavilions. So everything had a little icon, and Epcot itself had a uh, one that was like five concentric circles with a uh, like a supposed to be like a globe in the middle of it. 
and Horizons had one that was, uh, it looked like uh, you were looking out on the horizon in some ways. It was like a, um, a line, it was a circle with a line going across the middle that had sort of a, an upside down V uh, going through it. And then it had like a, um, a V shape going through it and it had lines going across. So it was like you were looking off on the horizons, almost like uh, the, um, the, the flight level on an, on an airplane, sort of, where you were looking at the horizon and seeing what was there. So that was the icon they used to represent Horizons, which was kind of neat. It's lost over time. I think all of them have lost their uh, their identity in that way uh, because they were they were uniquely identified by these little icons that they had on the park maps and in um, guides and uh, even in the park themselves. At each pavilion, they had the uh, little little icon representing them, and it was a way to kind of identify each of the uh, different uh, future world pavilions in some way. Now let me give you some quick facts about uh, Horizons. The pavilion uh, had 136,835 square feet. There were 54 audio animatronics in there, 770 distinct props, 24 individual sets, 4 video monitors, 9 projectors, 13 uh, video playback machines, 12 film projectors, 50 special effects, 2,784 person per hour capacity. The show time is 14 minutes and 45 seconds. Cycle time was 15 minutes, so there was that 15 second delay while it went from unload to load. The maximum number of vehicles they had on the track at any time was 174. They had 10 spare vehicles they could roll onto the track at any time. The vehicles each had four seats in them. The ride length was 1,346 feet. The speed was 1.5 feet per second. Dispatch interval was 4.8 seconds, so every, every five seconds another car was being dispatched with riders in it. Uh, load and unload was a moving belt. And the queue capacity was uh, 696 people, so you could have 696 people waiting to go in there. Now, the other thing about the uh, the attraction was that there were a number of Imagineers who worked on this project. Uh, this is this is a large-scale project. I mean, when you listen to the names, you realize it's, it really was big, because a lot of these were the big names, the heavy hitters in the uh, Imagineering world. So you had George McGinnis, Marty Scalar, Gil Kepler, John Hench, Marty Kendall, uh, Ned Landon, Claude Coates, Bob Kurzweil, Bill Norton, Colin Campbell, Chase Young, Tom Fitzgerald, Tom Sherman, John Berman, Ernie Seuss, George Trimmer, Greg Wilsback, and uh, Shim Yokoyama. They had so much influence over so many of the things that Disney did. It was a remarkable thing to see them all go and uh, you know be involved in this particular project. This was an enormous project and huge for Disney. And I think it was it was really remarkable in that sense. Now. Uh, the, the guidebook for Disney said, This is an incredible journey through lifestyles for the 21st century. After blasting off from Future Court, you'll examine the marvels imagined by visionaries of the past. Jules Verne's cannonball flight to the moon, for example, through the wonders of micro and macro photography, never before seen images of today's world unfold on the world's largest motion picture screen. Then it's off to explore the future habitats, the urban environment of tomorrow, a robotic staff desert form, a working ocean colony in a space city where asteroid mining and zero-gravity crystal manufacture are facts of everyday life. The rest of the adventure is up to you. You and your fellow passengers control which future environment to explore as you choose your own new horizon in the finale. So that was what appeared in the, uh, in the Epcot Center guidebook, the, the guide map that you would pick up. Uh, after I um, graduated from college, I went to work for the General Electric Company. And I worked there in the early 1990s, so it was like 90, 91, something like that. And I was working up in Daytona Beach. I was still living in Orlando, and I was commuting up to Daytona. So for those of you who don't know, it's like a 30, 35-minute drive. So I was out there every uh, every day, and 
the thing was that I'd go to Disney on the weekends. And on days off, I'd often go over to Disney and go hang out. That was, that was my thing. I enjoyed it so much, I'd do it as often as I could. I had always known there were these, you know, like, secret rooms or special places where people who worked for the company had, like, hospitality rooms. And I learned about um, GE had one in uh, Horizons. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And I started asking around and talking to different people. And eventually, I found somebody who knew about it and knew how to get into it. So I, you know, I was asking one day, I go, oh, how do I get into it? And they said, well, you can, you can just go up to it. And you just go to the side and you can go in. I was like, oh, that's cool. So one Saturday, I was out there and I just, uh, I walked up and she said, you know, when you walk up to the pavilion, pavilion, you make a right turn, there's a little path, you go up and make a quick left and there's a door right there. It looks like a nondescript door, it looks like it's a cast member type of door. Just open the door and you're in the lobby and just talk to the person in there. So I did. I followed that, those instructions. The first time it was kind of, you know, kind of weird. You know, you're like, you're on this off the beaten path here, right? And you're going somewhere. And I opened the door. There was a nice receptionist in the lobby and I talked to her for a minute. And I said, yeah, I wanted to see the, the GE lounge. She goes, let me just see your ID. And I pulled out my, uh, my ID for working at, uh, at GE. She said, okay, no problem. Just take the elevator up right there. So I took the elevator up to the second floor of Horizons. And here you walk into this room and it's just like this, you know, there's this like hallway and there's this like lounge there. There were some chairs um, and some couches and comfy leather chairs and whatever. And there was a table and there was a little dining room there and you could uh, order some snacks or whatever. They always had some snacks out. They had like little sodas and water and different drinks and things like that. And there was, uh, I don't know, chips or popcorn or, you know, pretzels or something out on the table and you could help yourself. And you could just hang around and on a warm summer's day, man, there was nothing more refreshing than sitting in the GE lounge having a cool drink and just relaxing and having a nice time. And it was, it was really pretty cool and started going more regularly. When I'd go to the, when I got Epcot, I'd, I'd go there. That was all there was to it. So I really got to know some of the, some of the people that worked there a little bit because I was there regularly. It's funny because the couple of people that worked in there were GE employees and their job was really to be hospitality hosts at the GE Pavilion. They would help you make dining reservations. You call ahead and they'd have a birthday cake waiting for you. So I did that one time for a friend. We had a birthday cake and uh, it was kind of fun, you know, and everybody that was there kind of celebrated in it a little bit. And uh, they had a deal going where if, you know, every time you'd come in, they'd sign your card and after you got it signed 10 times, you got another free ticket to Epcot. <laughs> it's kind of cool. Then one of the other neat things was over on, they had a couple of TVs around, you know, tuned to different things and one of them was tuned to a, what looked like a camera outside. So I was looking at it for a couple of minutes and I realized that the camera was actually on top of the Horizons building. And you could control it with a little joystick that was there on the, uh, on the TV. So you could like look around the park and zoom in and do different things and have some fun with it. I'd be looking there and I, oh, well, what's, let's see what the wait time looks like over at the Maelstrom. And you'd turn it over that way and you'd, you know, you'd see, what the, see what the line was out the door or whatever. But it was just kind of fun. You, know, you could sit there and play around with it for a little bit. They also had a little merchandise shop where you could buy, um, it was a company store, so you could buy NBC merchandise since GE owned NBC. Or you could buy some GE-specific merchandise. I just, you know, I had a lot of fun just playing around up there. And like I said, I got to know everybody. And, uh, you know, I'd go back on a regular basis and just enjoy it. And it was, it was just kind of a neat way to see Disney from a whole other viewpoint, just because I happened to be working for General Electric at the time. When you were finished and you were done in the lounge, we'd stay up there for, you know, half hour, 45 minutes, maybe as long as an hour, just, you know, whatever. They'd, sometimes they'd have some magazines or some little entertainment, light entertainment going on there. And so you'd watch that and then you'd, then you'd leave. You could either go back out and go into the park on your own, or if you wanted to, you'd just tell the host that was there, hey, I want to ride Horizons. And they'd take you down in an elevator and take you to the unload queue. So you'd watch people getting out, and then they'd go, okay, just go ahead and get in this car right here. And you'd get in the next car that was available, and you'd ride around to the load queue, 
And so if you ever saw, if you're ever in the attraction, you saw somebody at the load queue already in the car, that's where they came from. And, you, you know, you'd ride around on the attraction and get off like just, just like everybody else. But it was really something. I mean, and, it, and that was a nice thing that I think GE did. Now, I understand that early on in its, in its days, it was more a place for GE executives to go. Uh, it wasn't intended for everyday employees. But uh, they loosened the rules and let anybody who had an ID come in at that point. And I know there were some meeting rooms in the back. I wanted to point out this, this interesting thing that I learned. General Electric, as a conglomerate, had a full range of businesses that would best be showcased in the hands-on post-show area after the ride. Uh, the late Mark Nowindick, a WDI writer, presented a post-show concept and called it Future Fair. The technologies would overlap thematically with the scenes in the ride, which depicted future life on land, underseen, and space. So, for example, we were going to have a medical systems, a diagnostic imaging, patient monitoring, demonstrate CT scanners, and, data, and a data camera. They were going to have an international theater, uh, so basically an inverted dome, with helicopter views of mining, hydropower, GE-powered ships, and construction operations. Free enterprise and community, a puppet or film show that traveled with the guest as he steps on a circular moving sidewalks, traveling sound overhead to kind of read the description of what's going on. GE Information Services, a Mark III computer network, mobile radio operations, maybe some quizzes and voice-activated data banks, guest-operated magnetic levitation vehicles, a kaleidoscope theater, a film projection framed with angled mirrors creating a giant sphere, so represent science and technology presented with kaleidoscope views of computer chips, crystal growth, and man-made diamonds. They were going to have simulators, which were high-speed uh, vehicle experiences like a race car, helicopter, and a boat. And then a research and development area with aircraft engines, new materials, energy systems, and plastics. So while they've dubbed it the Future Fair, it was eventually scuttled. A couple of these concepts still saw the light of day. The Kaleidoscope Theater was retained by Imagineers and used in the queue area to highlight some of the attraction's fantastic conceptual art by painter Rob McCall. And the moving theater concept for free enterprise and community segments was incorporated into the attraction itself as the show's finale. So the question becomes, why wasn't this part of the exhibit? Well, the answer is that uh, the heir apparent, Jack Welch, actually rejected this because it was too commercial. Now remember, a few minutes ago I was talking about how this is all about commercialization. There's all this intent to commercialize and make things you know, better in that sense where they're more commercial and they're more involved. I have trouble wrapping my brain around that, that Jack Welch actually said no to the commercialization. And, you know, you look at some of the other attractions that popped up. The Trans Center back next door at the World of Motion was, was a huge example of, you know, really a commercialization for GM. You could go in and look at concept cars and some of the latest models as you were leaving that attraction. There was a, a post on, on a website that said, What's interesting, though, that although the, the post-show was commercial and the ride benefited from its absence, it would have been a really cool exhibit uh, in Communicore. It certainly wouldn't have seemed out of place. Also notable is that many of the concepts and issues explored in the exhibit are still relevant today. Uh, exit polls after opening day indicated the guests would very much enjoyed Horizons, but were not making the connection between Horizons and G GE that a future fair would have provided. The obvious solution was to add a GE logos on the technical set pieces throughout the show's future scenes. Later, artist Bob McCall's exit mural was removed and replaced with the lighted corridor leading to the, the large static electricity light bulb displaying GE's logo. This improved guests' awareness of... GE sponsorship. Here's the you know the final final parting uh, thought about this. Um, Horizons opened in 1983, a year after Epcot opened. Horizons, presented by General Electric, applied future world into one attraction by exploring communication, energy, transportation, imagination, land, sea, and futuristic families. 
After you enter your vehicle, you explore scenes showing ideas for the future from the past, including Jules Verne's bullet rocket, part of the ride viewed on an omnisphere which surrounded guests with a thermal uh, cityscape, robot manufacturing plant, and other technological wonders. Then you entered the 21st century where you could see farms grown in the desert, travel through a magnetic power, undersea resources harvested by ro robotic power, and crystals grown by space colonies. Nearing the end, guests could choose one of three modes of transportation to return to Earth. A desert hovercraft, a personal submarine, or a mini shuttle through space. So that's it for this week. Next week, um, next time what I think I'd like to do with you is take a ride through. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll take the actual audio from the ride and I'll comment on it and talk about some of the specifics that were in the ride and some of the, how the attraction worked and that sort of thing. And that will wrap up our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll have another podcast out here in about a week or so, so please check back and see how we're doing. If you have feedback or thoughts, feel free to email me at dave at bitchindave.com. Always happy to hear feedback. Want to know what you think about the podcast? 